Welcome back to episode 8 of The Plague. Um, tonight we're going to try to get through pages 167 up through 185. It's actually part 3 of the novel, so it's the entirety of part 3. It's a short little section uh, that we'll get through. Thus week by week, the prisoners of plague put up what they could, fight they could. Some, like Umber, even contrived to fancy they were still behaving as free men and had the power of choice. But actually, it would have been true to say that by this time, mid-August, the plague had swallowed up everything and everyone. No longer were there individual destinies, only a collective destiny, made of plague and the emotions shared by all. Strongest of these emotions was a sense of exile and of deprivation, with all the cross-currents of revolt and fear set up by these. That is what the narrator thinks this moment, registering the climax of the summer heat and the disease, the best for describing, on general lines, and by way of illustration, the excess of living, burials of the dead, and the play of parted lovers. It was at this time that the high wind rose and blew for several days through plague-stricken city. Wind is particularly dreaded by the inhabitants of Iran, since the plateau on which the town is built presents no natural obstacle, and it can sweep our streets with unimpeded violence. During the months when not a drop of rain had refreshed the town, a great crust had formed on everything, and this flaked off under the wind, disintegrating into dust clouds. What, what with the dust and scraps of paper whirled against people's legs, the streets, drew, the streets grew emptier. Those few who went out could be seen hurrying along, bent forward with handkerchiefs, or their hands pressed to their mouths. At nightfall, instead of the usual throng of people, each trying to prolong a day that might as well be its last, you met only small groups hastening home, or to a favorite cafe, with the result that for several days when twilight came, it fell much quicker at this time of the year. The streets were almost empty, a silent but for long-drawn stridents of the wind. A smell of brine and seaweed came from the unseen, storm-tossed sea, and in the growing darkness in the almost empty town, paled and in the dust, swept by bitter sea spray, and loud with the shrilling of the wind, seemed a lost island of the damned. Hitherto the plague had found far more victims in the more thickly populated and less well-appointed outer districts than in the heart of the town. Quite suddenly, however, it launched a new attack and established itself in the business center. Residents accused the wind of carrying infection, broadcasting germs, as the hotel manager put it. Whatever the reason might be, people living in the central districts realized that their turn had come when each night they heard oftener and oftener the ambulances clanging past, signing the plague's dismal, passionless tosin under, the, under their windows. The authorities had the idea of segregating certain particularly affected central areas and permitting only those whose services were indispensable to cross the cordon. Dwellers in these districts could not help regarding these regulations as sort of taboo, specifically directed at themselves, and thus they came, by contrast, to envy residents in other areas their freedom. And the latter, to cheer themselves up in the despondent moments, fell to picturing the lot of those others less free than themselves. Anyhow, there are some worse off than I, was a remark that voiced the only solace to be had in those days. About the same time, we had a re recrudescence of outbreaks of fire, especially in the residential area near the West Gate. It was found after inquiry that people who had returned from quarantine were responsible for these fires. Thrown off their balance by bereavement and anxiety, they were burning their houses under the odd delusion that they were killing off the plague in the Holocaust. Great difficulty was experienced in fighting these fires, whose number and frequency exposed whole districts to constant danger, owing to the high wind. 
When these attempts made by the authorities to convince these well-meaning incendiaries that the official fumigation of their houses effectively removed any risk of infection had proved unavailing, it became necessary to decree very heavy penalties for this type of arson. It most likely was not the prospect of a mere imprisonment that deterred these unhappy people, but the common belief that, the, that a sentence of imprisonment was a tantamount to a death sentence, owing to a very high mortality prevailing in the town jail. It must be admitted that there was some foundation for this belief. It seemed that, for obvious reasons, the plague launched in most virulent attacks on those who lived by choice or by necessity in groups, soldiers, prisoners, monks, and nuns. For though some prisoners are kept solitary, a prison forms a sort of community, as is provided, proved by the fact that in our town, the jail, the guards died of plague in the same proportion as the prisoners. The plague was no respecter of persons, and under its despotic rule, everyone, from the warden down to the humblest delinquent, was under sentence, and perhaps the first time, impartial justice reigned in the prison. Attempts made by the authorities to redress this leveling out by some sort of hierarchy the idea was to confer a decoration on guards who died in the exercise of their duties came to nothing. Since martial law had been declared and the guards might, for a certain angle, be regarded as on active service, they awarded posthumously the military medal. But though the prisoners raised no, raised no protest, strong exception was taken in military circles, and it was pointed out, logically enough, that the most regrettable confusion in the public mind would certainly ensue. The civil authority conceded the point and decided that the simplest solution was to bestow on guards who died at their post a plague medal. Even so, since as regards to the first recipients of the military medal, the harm had been done, and there was no question of the withdrawing of the decoration from them, the military were still dissatisfied. Moreover, the plague medal had the disadvantage of having a far less moral effect than attaching to a military award, since in the time of pestilence, a decoration of this sort is too easily acquired. Thus, no, nobody satisfied. Another difficulty was the jail administration could not follow the procedure adopted by the religious and, in a lesser degree, military authorities. The monks in the two monasteries of the town had been evacuated and lodged for some time being with religious-minded families. In the same way, whenever possible, small bodies of men had been moved out of the barracks and billeted in schools or public buildings. Thus the disease, which apparently had forced on us the solitary of a beleaguered town, disrupted at the same time long-established communities and sent men out to live as individuals in relative isolation. This too added to the general feeling of unrest. Indeed, it can be easily imagined that these changes, combined with the high wind, also had an incendiary effect on certain minds. There were frequent attacks on the gates of the town and the men who made them now were armed. Shots were exchanged, there were casualties, and some few got away. Then the sentry posts were reinforced, and such attempts quickly ceased. Nonetheless, they sufficed to start a wave of revolutionary violence, though only on a small scale. Houses that had been burnt or closed by the sanitary control were looted. However, it seemed unlikely that these excesses were per premeditated. Usually it was some chance incentive that it normally led well-behaved people to acts which promptly had their imitators. Thus, you sometimes saw a man acting on some crazy impulse, dash into a blazing house under the eyes of its owner, who was standing by, dazed with grief, watching the flames. Seeing his indifference, many of these onlookers would follow the lead given by the first man, and presently the dark street was full of running men, changed to hunch misshapen gnomes by a flickering glow from the dying flames and the ornaments of furniture that they carried on their shoulders. It was incest of this sort they compelled authorities to declare martial law and enforce regulations deriving from it. Two looters were shot, but we may doubt if this made much impression on the others. With so many deaths taking place every day, these two executions went unheeded, a mere drop in the ocean. 
Actually, scenes of this kind continue to take place fairly often, without the authorities even making a show of intervening. The only regulation that seemed to have some effect on the populace was the establishment of a curfew hour. From 11 onwards, plunged in complete darkness. Oran seemed a huge necropolis. On moonlit nights, the long straight street and dirty white walls, nowhere darkened by the shadow of the street, their peace untroubled by the footsteps or a dog's bark, glimmered in pale recession. The silent city was no more than an assemblage of huge inert cubes, between which only the mute effigies of great men, carapist in bronze, with their blank stone or metal faces, conjured up a sorry semblance of what the man had been. In lifeless squares and avenues, these tawdry idols lorded it under a lowering sky, stolid monsters that might have personified the rule of immobility imposed on us, or, anyhow, its final aspect, that of a defunct city in which plague, stone, darkness had effectively silenced every voice. But there was, no dark, there was also a darkness in men's hearts, and the facts were as little calculated to reassure our townsfolk as the wild stories going around about the burials. The narrator cannot keep talking about these burials, and a word of excuse is here in place. For he is well aware of the reproach that might be made for him in this respect. His justification is that funerals were taking place throughout this period, and, in a way, he was compelled, as indeed everybody was compelled, to give heed to them. In any case, it should not be assumed that he had such a morbid taste for such ceremonies. Quite the contrary, he much prefers the society of the living, and, to give a concrete illustration, sea bathing. But the bathing beaches were out of bounds, and the company of the living ran a risk, increasing as the days went by, of being a prefers converted into the company of the dead. That was indeed self-evident. True, one could always refuse to face that disagreeable fact, shut one's eyes to it, and thrust it out of the mind. But there is a terrible cogency in the self-evident. Ultimately, it breaks down all defenses. How, for instance, continue to ignore the funerals on the day when somebody you loved needed one? Actually, the most striking feature of our funerals was their speed. Formalities have been whittled down, and generally speaking, all elaborate ceremonial suppressed. The plague victim died away from his family, and on the customary vigil beside the dead body was forbidden, and the result that a dying person in the evening spent the night alone, and those who died in the daytime were promptly buried. Needless to say, the family was notified, but in most cases, since the deceased had lived with them, its members were in quarantine and thus immobilized. When, however, the deceased had not lived with his family, they were asked to attend at a fixed time. After, that is to say, the body had been washed and put in the coffin, and when the journey to the cemetery was about to begin. Let us suppose that these formalities were taking place at the auxiliary hospital of which Dr. Yu was in charge. This converted school had an exit at the back of the main building. A large storeroom giving on the corridor contained the coffins. On arrival, the family found a coffin already nailed up in the corridor. Then came the most important part of the business, the signing of the official forms by the head of the family. Next, the coffin was loaded on a motor vehicle, a real hearse or a large converted ambulance. The Morris stepped into one of the few taxis still allowed to ply, the, and the vehicles drove hell for leather to the cemetery by a route avoiding the center of town. There was a halt at the gate where the police officers applied a rubber stamp to the official exit permit, without which it was impossible for our citizens to have what they called a last resting place. The policemen stood back, and the cars drew up near the plot of ground where the number of graves stood open, waiting for inmates. A priest came to meet the mourners, since church services at funerals were now prohibited. To an accompaniment of prayers, the coffin was dragged from the hearse, roped up, and carried to the graveside. The ropes were slipped, and it, was, and it came heavily to rest at the bottom of the grave. No sooner had the priest begun to sprinkle holy water than the first sod rebounded from the lid. The ambulance had already left and was being sprayed with disinfectant. 
while the spadefuls of clay thudded more and more duly, dully on the rising layer of earth. The family were bundled in a taxi. A quarter of an hour later, they were back at home. The whole process was put through with the maximum of speed and the minimum of risk. It cannot be denied that anyhow in the early days, the natural feelings of the family were somewhat outraged by these lighting funerals, lightning funerals. But obviously in a time of plague, such sentiments can't be taken into account, and all was sacrificed to efficiency. And though to start with, the morale of the population was shaken by the summary procedure, for the desire to have a proper funeral is more widespread than generally, widespread than generally believed. As the time went on, fortunately enough, the food problem became more urgent and the thoughts of our town folks were diverted to more instant needs. So much energy was expended on filling up forms, hunting around for supplies, and lining up that people had no time to think of the manner in which others were dying around them, and they themselves would die one day. Thus the growing complications of our everyday life, which might have been an affliction, proved to be a blessing in disguise. Indeed, had not the epidemic, as already mentioned, spread its ravages, all would have been for the best. When, for then coffins became scarcer. Also, there was a shortage of, wind, of winding sheets and of space in the cemetery. Something had to be done by this. And one obvious step, justified in its practical convenience, was to combine funerals, and when necessary, multiply the trips between the hospital and the burial place. At one moment, the stock of coffins in reused hospitals reduced to five. Once filled, all five were loaded together in the ambulance. At the cemetery, they were emptied out, and the iron-gray corpses put onto stretchers and deposited in a shred shed reserved for that purpose to wait their turn. Meanwhile, the empty coffins, after being sprayed with, an anti sprayed with an antiseptic fluid, were rushed back to the hospital, and process was repeated as often as necessary. The system worked excellently and won the approval of the prefect. He even told Ryu that it was really a great improvement on the death carts driven by the Negroes, of which one reads in accounts of former visitations of this sort. Yes, Ryu said, and though the burials are much the same, we keep careful records of them. That, you will agree, is progress. Successful, however, as a system proved itself in practice, there was something so distasteful in the last rites as now performed that the prefect felt constrained to forbid relations of the deceased being present at the actual interment. They were allowed to come only as fo so far as the cemetery gates, and even that was not authorized officially, for things had somewhat changed in regards to the last stage of the ceremony. In a patch of open ground dotted with lenticus trees at the far end of the cemetery, two big pits had been dug. One was reserved for the men, the other for the women. Thus, in respect, the authorities still gave thought to propriety, and it was only later that, by force of things, this last remnant of decorum went by the board and men and women were flung to the death pits indiscriminately. Happily, this ultimate indignity synchronized with the plague's last ravages. In this period, we are now concerned with the separation of the sexes by still by force, and the authorities set great store by it. At the bottom of each pit, a deep layer of quicklime steamed and seethed. On the lips of the pit, a low ridge of quicklime threw up bubbles and burst in the air above it. When the ambulance had finished its trips, the stretchers were carried to the pits in Indian file. The naked, somewhat contorted bodies were slid off into the pit almost side by side, then covered with a layer of quicklime and another of earth, the latter only a few inches deep, so to leave space for subsequent consignments. On the following day, the next of the kin were asked to, asked to sign the register of burials, which showed the distinction that can be made between men and, for example, dogs. Men's deaths were checked and entered up. Obviously, all these activities called for a considerable staff, and Ryu was often on the brink of shortage. 
Many of the grave diggers, stretcher barrels, bearers, and the like, public servants to begin with, and later volunteers, died of plague. However stringent the precautions, sooner and later contagion did its work. Still, when all was said and done, the really amazing thing is that so long as the epidemic lasted, there was never any lack of men for these duties. The critical moment came just before the outbreak touched the high watermark, and the doctor had a good reason for, fe for feeling anxious. There was a real shortage of manpower, both for the higher posts and for the rough work, as Ryu called, called it. But paradoxically enough, once the whole town was in the grip of the disease, its very prevalence tended to make things easier since the disorganization of the town's economic life threw a great number of persons out of work. Few of the workers thus made available were qualified for administrative posts, but the recruiting for, of men for rough work became much easier. For now on, indeed, poverty showed itself a stronger stimulus than fear, especially as, owing to its risks, such work was highly paid. The sanitary authorities always had a waiting list of applicants for work. Whenever there was a vacancy, the men at the top of the list were notified, and unless they had two had been laid off, for good work, they never failed to appear when summoned. Thus the prefect, who had always been reluctant to employ the prisoners in the jail, whether short-term men or lifers, was able to avoid recourse to this distasteful measure. As long as he said there were some unemployed, we could afford to wait. Thus, until the end of August, our fellow citizens could be conveyed to their last resting place, if not under very decor decorous conditions, at least in a manner orderly enough for the authorities to feel that they were doing their duty by the dead and the bereaved. However, we may here anticipate a little in described a pass, which we came to in the final phase. From August onwards, the plague mortality was and continued such as far to exceed the capacity of our small cemetery. Such expedients as knocking down walls and letting the dead encroach on neighboring land proved inadequate. Some new method had to be evolved without delay. The first step taken was to bury the dead by night, which obviously permitted a more summary procedure. The bodies were piled in ambulances in larger and larger numbers, and the few belated wayfarers who, in defiance of the regulations, were abroad in the outlying districts after curfew hours, or whose duties took them there, often saw the long white ambulances hurling past, making the night-bound streets reverberate in the dull clangor of the bells. The corpses were tipped pell-mell into the pits, and hardly settled in the place when spadefuls of quicklime began to sear their faces, and the earth covered them indistinctively in holes dug steadily deeper as time went on. Shortly, however, after, shortly afterwards, however, it became necessary to find new space and to strike into a new direction. By a special urgency measure, the denizens of Grants in perpetuity were evicted from their graves, and the exhumed remains dispatched to a crematorium. As soon as the plague victims likewise had to go to a fiery end, this meant that the old crematorium east of the town, outside the gates, had to be utilized. Accordingly, the East Gate Sentry Post was moved farther out, then a municipal employee had the idea that greatly helped the harassed authorities. He advised them to employ the streetcar line running the coastal road, which was now unused. So the interiors of the streetcars and the trailers were adapted to this new purpose, and a branch line was laid down to the crematorium, which thus became a terminus. During all the late summer and throughout the autumn, there could be a daily moving along of the road skirting the cliffs and the sea a strange procession of passengerless streetcars swaying against the skyline. The residents in this area soon learned what was going on, and though the cliffs were patrolled day and night, little groups of people contrived to thread their way unseen between the rocks and would toss flowers into the open trailers as the car went by. And in the warm darkness of the summer nights, the cars could be heard clanking on their way, laden with flowers and corpses. 
During the first few days, an oily, foul-smelling cloud of smoke hung low upon the eastern districts of the town. These effluvia, all the doctors agreed, though unpleasant, were not the la- not in the least harmful. However, the residents of this part of the town threatened to migrate in a body convinced that the germs were raining down on them from the sky, with the result that an elaborate apparatus for diverting the smoke had to be installed to appease them. Thereafter, only when a strong wind was blowing did a faint, sickly odor coming from the east remind them that they were living under a new order and that the plague fires were taking their nightly toll. Such were the consequences of the epidemic at the culminating point. Happily, it grew no worse. For otherwise, it may well be believed the resourcefulness of our administrators and the confidence of our officials, not to mention the burning capacity of our crematorium, would have proved unequal to their task. Ryu knew that the desperate solutions had been mooted, such as throwing the corpses into the sea, and a picture had risen before him of hideous jetsam lolling in the shadows under the cliffs. He knew, too, that if there was another rise in the death rate, no organization, however efficient, could stand up to it. The men would die in heaps, and the corpses rot in the streets. Whatever the authorities might do, and the town would see in public squares, the dying embrace of the living in the frenzies of an all-too-comprehensible hatred or some crazy hope. Such were the sights and apprehensions that kept alive in our townspeople their feeling of exile and separation. In this connection, the narrator is well aware how regrettable is is his inability to record at this point something of a really spectacular order, some heroic feat or some memorable deed like those thrill us in the chronicles of the past. The truth is that nothing less is nothing is less sensational than pestilence, and by reason of their very duration, great misfortunes are monotonous. In the memories of those who lived through them, the grim days of plague do not stand out like vivid flames, ravenous and in- inextinguishable, beaconing a troubled sky, but rather like a slow, deliberate progress of some monstrous thing crushing out all upon its path. No, the real plague had nothing to do, nothing in common with the grandiose imaginings that had haunted Ryu's mind at its outbreak. It was, above all, a shrewd, unflagging adversary, a skilled organizer doing his work thoroughly and well. That it may that it may be said in passing is why, so as not to play false to the facts, and still more, so not to play false to himself, the narrator has aimed at objectivity. He has made hardly any changes for the sake of artistic effect, except those elementary adjustments needed to present his narrative in a more or less coherent form. And in deference to the scruple, he is constrained to admit that, in though the chief source of distress, the deepest as well as most widespread was separation. It is his duty to say more about it as it existed in the later stages of the plague. It cannot be denied that even this distress was coming to lose something of its poignancy. Was it that our fellow citizens, even those who had felt its parting from their loved ones most keenly, were getting used to doing without them? To assume this would fall somewhat short of the truth. It would be more correct to say that they were wasting away emotionally as well as physically. At the beginning of the plague, they had a vivid re- recollection of absent ones and barely felt their loss. But though they could clearly recall a face, the smile, the voice of a beloved, and this is or that ex- occasion when, as they saw in retrospect, they had been supremely happy. They had trouble in picturing what he or she might be doing at the moment when they conjured up these memories. In a saying so hopelessly remote, in short, at these moments, memory played its part but their imagination failed them. During the second phase of the plague, their memory failed them too. Not that they had forgotten the face itself, but what came to the same thing. It had lost fleshy substance, and they no longer saw it in memory's mirror. 
Thus, while during the first weeks they were apt to complain that only shadows remained to them of what their loved had meant, been and meant, now it came to learn that even shadows can waste away, losing the faint hues of life that memory may give. And by the end of their long sundering, they had also lost the power of imagining an intimacy that once was theirs or understanding what it can be to live with someone whose life is wrapped up in yours. In this respect, they had adapted themselves to the very condition of the plague, all the more potent for its mediocrity. None of us was capable any longer of an exalted emotion. All had trite, monotonous feelings. It's high time it stopped, people would say, because in a time of calamity, the obvious thing to, is to desire its end. And in fact, they wanted to end. But when making such remarks, we felt none of the passionate yearning or fierce resentment of the early plague. We merely voiced one of the few clear ideas that lingered in the twilight of our minds. The furious revolt of the first few weeks had given place to a vast despondency, not to be taken for resignation, though it was nonetheless a sort of passive and provisional acquiescence. Our fellow citizens had fallen into line, adapting themselves, as people say, to the situation, because there was no way of doing otherwise. Naturally, they retained their attitudes of sadness and suffering, but they had ceased to feel their sting. Indeed, to some, Ryu among them, this precisely was the most disheartening thing, that the habit of despair is worse than despair itself. Hitherto, those who were parted had not, utterly, had not been utterly unhappy. There was always a gleam of hope in the night of their distress, that the gleam had now died out. You could see them at the street corners, in cafes or friends' houses, listless, indifferent, and looking so bored that because of them, the whole town seemed like a railway, railway waiting room. Those who had jobs went about them at the exact tempo of the plague with dreary uh, perseverance. Everyone was modest. For the first time, exiles from those they had loved had no reluctance to talk freely about them, using the same words as everybody else, and regarding their deprivation from the same angle as that from which they viewed the latest statistics of the epidemic. This change was striking, since until now they had jealously withheld their personal grief from the common stock of suffering. Now they accepted its inclusion. Without memories, without hope, they lived for the moment only. Indeed, the, the here and now had come to mean everything to them. For there is no denying that the plague had gradually killed off in all of us the faculty not of love only, but even of friendship. Naturally enough, since love as something of the future and nothing was left us but what, but a series of present moments. However, this account of our predicament gives only broad lines. Thus, while it's true that all of us who parted came ultimately to this state, we must add that all did not attain it simultaneously. Moreover, once this utter apathy had fallen on them, there were still flashes of lucidity, broken lights of memory that rekindled in exiles a younger, keener sensibility. This happened when, for instance, they fell into making plans, implying that the plague had ended, or when, quite unexpectedly, by some kindly chance, they felt a twinge of jealousy, nonetheless acute for its objectiveness, objectlessness. Others had s sudden ac accesses of energy and shook off their languor on certain days of the week, for obvious reasons, on Sunday and Sundays and Saturday afternoons because these had been devoted to certain ritual pleasures in the days when the loved ones were still accessible. Sometimes the mood of the melancholy that descended on them with the nightfall acted as a sort of warning, not always fulfilled, however, that the old memories were floating up to the surface. That evening hour for which believers is the time to look into their consciences is hardest of all hours on the prisoner or exile who has nothing to look into but the void. 
For a moment, it held them in suspense. Then they sank back into their lethargy. The prison door had closed on them once again. Obviously, this is all meant to giving up what was most personal in their lives. Whereas in the early days of the plague, they had been struck by the most small details that, when meaning absolutely nothing to others, meant so much to them personally, and thus realized, perhaps for the first time, the uniqueness of each man's life. Now, on the other hand, they took an interest only in what interested everyone else. They had only a general idea, and even their tenderest effect affections now seemed abstract items of the common stock so completely were they dominated by the plague that sometimes the one thing they aspired to was the long sleep it brought and they caught themselves thinking a good thing if i get the plague and have done with it but really they were asleep already this whole period was for them no more than a one than a long night's slumber the town was peopled with sleepwalkers whose trance was broken only on the rare occasion when at their night their when at night their wounds, to all appearance closed, suddenly reopened. Then, waking with a start, they would run their fingers over the wounds with a sort of absent-minded curiosity, twisting their lips, and their flash of their grief blazed up again. And abruptly there rose before them a mournful visage of their love. In the morning they had harked back to normal conditions, in other words, the plague. What impression, it may be asked, did these exiles of the plague make on the observer? The answer is simple. They made none. Or to put it differently, they looked like everybody else, nondescript. They shared in the torpor of the town and its puerile agitations. They lost every trace of a critical spirit while gaining an air of sangfroid. You could see, for instance, even the most intelligent among them making a show like all the rest studying the newspapers or listening to the radio in the hope apparently of finding some reason to believe the plague would shortly end. They seemed to derive fantastic hopes or equally exaggerated fears from reading the lines that some journalist had scribbled at random, yawning with boredom at his desk. Meanwhile, they drank their beer, nursed their sick, idled or doped themselves with work, filed documents in offices, or played the phonograph at home without betraying any difference from the rest of us. In other words, they had ceased to choose for themselves. Plague had leveled out discrimination. This could be seen by the way nobody troubled about the quality of the clothes or food bought. Everything was, was taken as it came. And finally, it's worth noting that those who were parted ceased to enjoy the curious privilege that had been theirs at the outset. They had lost love's egoism and the benefit they derived from it. Now at least the position was clear. This calamity was everybody's business. What with the gunshots echoing at the gates, the punctual thuds of rubber stamps marking the rhythm of lives and deaths, the fire, files and the fires, the panics and the formalities, all alike were pledged to an ugly but recorded death. And amid nauseous fumes and the muted clang of ambulances, all of us ate the same sour bread of exile, unconsciously waiting for the same reunion, the same miracle of peace regained. No doubt our love persisted, but in practice it served nothing. It was an inert mass within us, sterile as crime or, or a life sentence. It had declined on a patience that led nowhere, a dogged expectation. Viewed from this angle, the attitude of some of our fellow citizens resembled that of long queues one saw outside food shops. There was the same resignation, the same long sufferance, inexhaustible and without illusions. The only difference was that the mental state of the food seekers would need to be raised to a vastly higher power to make it comparable with the gnawing pain of separation, since this latter came from a hunger fierce, 
to the point of insatiability. In any case, if the reader would have the correct idea of the mood of these exiles, we must conjure up once more those dreary evenings stifling down through a haze of dust and golden light on the treeless streets filled with teeming crowds of men and women. For characteristically, the sound that rose toward the terraces still bathed in the last glow of daylight. Now that the noises of vehicles and motors and the sole voice of the cities in ordinary times had ceased, was but one vast rumor of low voices and incessant footfalls. The drumming of innumerable souls timed with the eerie whistling of the plague in the sultry air above. The sound of a huge concourse of people marking time, a never-ending, stifling drone, that, gradually swelling, filled the town from end to end, and evening after evening gave its truest, mournfulest expression to the blind endurance that had ousted love from all of our hearts.